The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything that I need. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the right paths for his namesake. And even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. These are the words of Psalm 23, likely the most familiar psalm in all of American culture. You've probably heard it read aloud or shared or even printed at pamphlets at a funeral service or memorial service. William Holliday, who is a historian, studied about uh, Psalm 23 in the place of American culture and found that really before the Civil War, it wasn't used at the deathbed or at funeral services much. But by 1880, it was the most popular psalm there was. And he owes that to Henry Ward Beecher's tribute. Beecher was a clergyman and abolitionist during the Civil War, And he wrote these words about uh, Psalm 23, and I think they're really, really fitting to what we're going through right now. The 23rd Psalm is the nightingale of the Psalms. It is small and of homely feather, singing shyly out of obscurity. But oh, it has filled the air of the whole world with melodious joy, greater than the heart can conceive. Blessed be the day on which that Psalm was born. It has sung courage to the army of the disappointed. It has poured balm and consolation into the hearts of the sick, of captives in dungeons, of widows in their pinching griefs, or orphans in their loneliness. Dying soldiers have died easier as it was read to them. Ghastly hospitals have been illuminated. It has visited the prisoner and broken his chains, and like Peter's angel, led him in imagination and sung him back to his home again. It has made the dying Christian slave freer, than his master, and consoled those whom, dying, he left behind, caring not so much that he was gone as because they were left behind and could not go too. Nor is its work done. It will go on singing to your children and my children, to their children, through all generations of time, and then it shall fly back to the bosom, to the heart of God whence it is issued and sound on, mingled with all those sounds of celestial joy which make heaven musical forever. We're in a very anxious time. Global pandemics, curfews, protests, elections that must be had, murders that have happened, racism and injustice, and all of this played out on our social media accounts, which causes really internal strife. I think a lot of anxiety as we see and envy others and as we are seen and envied and judged. Our dreams have been canceled. Friends have moved. Loved ones have died. We're confused. We're frustrated. And like the people Beecher wrote about in the Civil War, 
we really need the melody, the heavenly, celestial, joyous music of Psalm 23. The music from the very heart of God. Let me give you some context for Psalm 23. It is a psalm of David, and that's because there's an inscription in amongst a lot of the psalms that say of David or by David. And uh, that doesn't mean that all the psalms were written by David, but we have pretty good confidence that this one was written by David. Now, David was a king, and he's the king by which all other kings were measured. He's the king man after God's own heart. But Psalm 23 kind of seems to be written maybe a little bit earlier or at least reflecting on an earlier part of David's life when he wasn't king. A good portion of David's life, he was being pursued by enemies. He was a rebel. And before that, he was just a nobody, a shepherd boy. And the psalmist, uh, the psalm here really reflects David's uh, behavior as a shepherd. That he sees God as his shepherd and he as a sheep just like he shepherded sheep. So David, as a shepherd boy during the reign of King Saul, um, probably reflected on these things of how God shepherded him. Now, King Saul was a very anxious man. It says that the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Well, we don't really know what this means, because evil spirits are not kind of the things we talk about today. But I do know that many people greet others when they sneeze with the German word Gesundheit, and that used to mean evil spirits be gone. So when people sneezed, there was this belief in the Middle Ages that they had an evil spirit in them that their body was trying to exercise or get out of their body, expel. Now we know it's germs and uh, dust and other things that get into our lungs and our body sneezes to get rid of the bad bacteria and it's a good mechanical, our body designed biology. But they didn't understand that the way we do now. And I wonder if the same could be said true for Saul's attendants who say, see, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. And Saul really was a man who was tormented with an anxious heart. And so they say, let the Lord command his servants to search for someone who can play the lyre. And he'll play when the evil spirit of God comes on you and you will feel better. So Saul sends his attendants, find somebody who plays and bring them to me. And one of the servants says, I've seen the son of Jesse who knows how to play the lyre. He's brave and a warrior. He speaks well and is fine looking man. And the Lord is with him. So then Saul sent, send me your son who's with the sheep. Now, this wouldn't have been just the normal way. De Jesse's receiving guards, a royal guard coming to say, give me your son. So David probably went willingly or unwillingly, no matter what. And so Jesse sends him with a skin of wine and a young goat, and he sends his son to Saul to be in servitude to this king. It's probably worse than the draft. David comes and enters into Saul's service, and Saul likes him very much. He becomes an armor bearer, and you will read about a story where David takes King Saul's armor, um, and Saul wants David to take King Saul's armor, and, and David refuses to fight Goliath. Saul sends word to Jesse, okay, you know what? I like your son so much. Um, I'm not going to punish you, but you gotta, you got to leave him here, right? It's probably more of a command than a request. Whenever the Spirit from God would come on Saul, David would play and take up his lyre and play, and relief would come to Saul, and he would feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. 
Perhaps David remembered these encounters with Saul when he would play for the king who had this anxious heart. Maybe the Spirit of God inspired David to write this psalm to calm our anxious hearts. Because like Saul, we're stuck inside, we're witnessing tragic events, we're horror, where things are horribly happening, and we are anxious. None of us can escape the anxious, evil spirit of our day, the ang- this evil spirit of anxiety. There's another time when David is likely playing, and perhaps he's singing Psalm 23. And Saul is sitting there, and an evil spirit came on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in hand. And while David was playing, the liar, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with a spear. But David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. Worry comes on all of us right now. And like Saul, many of us are sitting with javelins and spears in our hands, and we're throwing them at the loved ones that we care about. Spears of withdrawal and sarcasm, spears of anger, spears of critique. But I must pause here and acknowledge the real serious danger that there are people actually with things, physical things being thrown at them and beaten that we are hearing from our medical professionals that child abuse and domestic violence, that family abuse and violence is up because of the stay-at-home orders. And so if you or someone you know or a relative of yours is in an abusive relationship, seek help. And we want to champion that with you. We want to support you in that. If you don't know how to seek help, reach out to us via email or find our phone number on our website, glendale.church. We want to help get you the help you need. It's so easy to be Saul's overwhelmed by the anxiety and the evil spirit of our day to fling spears at others. We need the melody, the music of Psalm 23 to calm our anxious hearts. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at David who is commanded, commended to us as God, the man after God's own heart, the model king who wrote this psalm to remind us, to point us to Jesus, the true anointed one, the true perfectly king and shepherd of our hearts. David uses this phrase, the Lord is my shepherd, which is not only fitting for his experience as a shepherd of sheep, but actually as a king too. The kings of Israel were referred to as the shepherd of God's people Israel. Before Saul became king, the Israelites were ruled by the Lord, that he was their king and their shepherd. And they were shepherded by God out of Egypt into the wilderness, led by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The tabernacle was God's presence, a tent that Moses would enter into and speak with the Lord. And then God showed up on a mountain, Mount Sinai, in a mount, a cloud, and the people were struck by God's glory, and they were afraid and terrified. And they said, Moses, you be a go-between between us and God. We, we can't do it. We're too afraid. And so over and over again, the people set up these judges, these go-betweens between God and the people. In the book of Judges, really from Joshua on, you have Moses as the first judge, and then Joshua and Jephthah and uh, Gideon and Deborah and Samson and others. It's a story over and over again of the people 
requesting help from God and these human shepherds really failing at that job of leading and shepherding the people. And Samuel is this final judge. And he's now old. And so the people come to him and say, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. Now, Samuel's sons were bad and you could talk a little bit about his parenting style for sure. But look at the request that they make. They want to be like the other nations. And so Samuel's displeased because he feels like they're um, definitely taking a slight out on his leadership. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord says, listen to all that the people are telling to you, saying to you, it is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. And as they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Saul comes on the scene because as it is our custom as people, we constantly seek to replace God with human shepherds and kings. Right away, Saul lets his impatience and pride get the better of him. And the story found in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 13 through 15 is of Saul kind of losing his way. It's why God then sends Samuel to anoint a new king. And God's spirit leads Samuel to Bethlehem, to the house of Jesse. And Jesse's oldest son steps up and Samuel's like, yes, this guy is tall, dark, and handsome, right? And God nudges Samuel by saying, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So they exhaust all of Jesse's sons. They can't find one. And, and Samuel is, is irritated and he says, Don't you have another son? And, and Jesse's like, Yeah, he's out tending the sheep. Even Jesse doesn't value David enough. And you might see the way in which David seems to be a fatherless figure in the way that he then fathers his own children. That first Jesse seems to ignore him and treat him as less than, and then King Saul, who becomes kind of a pseudo-father, then betrays him. And so David then takes this out on his own children, being an absentee father, and it does not go well. Our series, Teach Us to Pray, for the last three weeks, has focused on the teachings of Jesus regarding prayer from Matthew chapter 6. Jesus is this true Messiah, this true Christ, because David had his flaws. He wasn't perfect, even though he's commended to us as a man after God's own heart. And so David, this one after God's own heart, points us to the truly perfect one who models the heart of God, and that's what Jesus does in Matthew chapter 6. And Brian has walked us through what it looks like to begin to pray the way that Jesus teaches us to pray. It's different than the way that I make requests. Jesus teaches us to make requests that are in line with the heart of God, that in fact change me, not me changing God to be on my side. It's not about getting the God on my side. It's about joining with God on God's side. And so Psalm 23, written a thousand years earlier, is actually a confident response to these petitions, to these requests that Jesus makes. Each request Jesus makes in the Lord's Prayer is responded to with a confident assurance found in Psalm 23. 
This was shared with me at a youth pastor retreat by my friend Jack, and so he's given me permission to share with you his insights. And so I'll be reading a lot of what he has to say because I think it's just so powerful in the way that he shared it with me. You can find more uh, of it on his blog that I'll link here as well, Jacked Up Thoughts. Here Jesus opens the prayer with the familiar Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the psalmist responds, The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything that I need. He opens this prayer with this affirmation that God is holy. And a request then that God, this holy God, that God's will would be carried out in our life. Not just in the spiritual realm, but as Brian reminded us, that that word, our Father in heaven, heaven is really the heavens of a plural, meaning the air around us, everywhere around us. And so we want God's will. This is our request in in Jesus' prayer, that God's will would be carried out in our lives. So the psalmist answers that request by stating clearly that the God that we are worshiping, the God who is holy, is our shepherd. And this metaphor implies that as sheep, we look to the shepherd for protection, for support, for providing our needs, and for leading us. God is the one who provides all these things precisely because he is what Jesus states. That he is holy, that his name is hallowed, that he's the king of our hearts. So Jesus' next request are, give us our day today our daily bread. And the psalmist, King David, the Spirit of Christ, responds with, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. This is really the first direct request that Jesus makes. And it's going on then with the psalmist responding from his own experience with the Lord. His experience is that God goes far beyond in his shepherding duties than just giving us daily bread. If you continue the metaphor of the sheep and the shepherd, David says that he lies down in green pastures. And this is a clear reference to sheep who've had plenty to eat. A sheep would not lie down in a green pasture unless it had eaten all its fill and felt safe and secure enough to lie down. David, as the sheep, enjoys the protection and provision of a good shepherd. And he also speaks of access to still waters, another reference to safety, having all of the needs met, food and drink, but not just any, it's still, it's calm, calming our anxious hearts. Jesus goes beyond just provision for actual things and and moves into spiritual and personal needs by saying, He restores my soul. So Jesus' request for provision is met by the psalmist's response that in relationship with the Lord, all things are met and then some. So we continue. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debts, to which the psalmist then responds, he guides me along the right paths for his namesake. And here Jesus asks for forgiveness and Brian's message on forgiveness was so on point that we have been forgiven so much we ought to forgive others. 
And forgiveness is so critical to be in right relationship with God. He qualifies it by asking that we forgive others um, as we in turn have been forgiven. The psalmist answers that God has gone beyond this request. That God not only forgives us, but leads us in the righteous way. That God is the one who teaches us and leads us to forgive others. That he leads us to be the ones that act rightly in relationship with others. That the right paths the psalmist speaks of are the paths that draw us closer to God and others in the context of what a right relationship looks like. Obviously, the foundation of this is being gracious, and that's what God does for us. That we live in a righteous example of God in all of God's ways, not in our own power, but because God is the one leading us down that way. For the psalmist, God answers the request of Jesus to forgive us our debts by shaping and directing us in all of our relationships. And it's doing that in such a way to bring glory and honor to God's name, which is also echoed in Jesus' prayer. And so we move in to kind of some of the last part of the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And the psalmist responds, Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So far, the psalmist has declared God's response goes above and beyond what Jesus' requests are. And that may seem weird to you that a thousand years before, the Spirit of Christ inspired a psalm that went above and beyond the request that the Spirit of Christ at work in Jesus of Nazareth would teach us to pray in Matthew chapter 6. But this makes sense because it's in keeping with the heart of God. This makes sense because God is at work in this. This answer from Psalm 23 reaches the pinnacle of this insight that the psalmist goes above and beyond. Jesus asked that God lead us not into temptation to deliver us, and Psalm 23 answers with a treatise on God's power and provision in the face of danger and the enemy. Temptation, Jack says, is the borderland of spiritual danger. The psalmist asserts that even in the darkest and most frightening place, in a pandemic with riots and protests and violence and murder, racism, there is no need to fear if one walks with God. It's not that evil things don't happen to the psalmist or to David who's walking through the darkest valley or that enemies don't pursue, but it is almost as if God is there walking with us through that valley, shepherding us through there. The shepherd's rod and staff represent God's discipline and protection, a nudge in the direction and a crooked staff to hook our necks and guide us along back onto the right path. The next image is really the most powerful. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. It is as though the psalmist faces his enemies on the field of battle, swords drawn, bows, 
and slings ready to go. And God enters the scene and tells the enemy to stand back and watch as God sets a table, a banquet out in front of him, and then calls David to sit and eat while the enemy looks on. And while he's doing that, he anoints David's head with oil, showing that God's chosen one is here, that he's pleased with him and dearly loved. And so he's greatly cared for. And his cup isn't just full, it overflows. All this is done with the enemy held in check, looking on. Truly God's provision is complete. We haven't looked in the sermon time very much at the ending of the song or of uh, the Lord's Prayer that you're probably very familiar with, and you may have wondered why. Why did we always end with without this added ending? And it's likely that it was added later, but I believe the Spirit of Christ was at work in its addition, in its saying, and it has been on my heart uh, to show you the connection that even the Spirit of Christ spoke to in the answer from Psalm 23 to this ending that says, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And so the the psalmist responds to this ending, surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so the spirit of Christ in Jesus of Nazareth closes this prayer as he began asserting that God is indeed the Lord. And that power and glory belong to him. The psalmist asserts in a response that this is because, uh, that because this is true, that because we know that the Lord is truly full of power and glory, that all these things belong to God, that we who walk with God as our shepherd, the ones who let God be the shepherd of their hearts, will benefit from peace and goodness and blessing coming to live under God's roof, under God's rule. And so um, it seems fitting for us to, to reflect on the connection between Psalm 23 and the Lord's Prayer. And perhaps maybe that word at the end there, follow all the days of my life, would better be translated pursue. Because David lived many years as an outlaw pursued by King Saul, someone who had been a friend to him now turned to foe. And many of other David's psalms speak of enemies' pursuit of him. But Psalm 23 uses the same Hebrew word to describe how no longer are there enemies in pursuit, but it's God's goodness and love in hot pursuit of him as he comes to dwell in the house of the Lord. Surely your goodness and love will pursue me all the days of my life. What would it look like for you to be pursued by love and goodness of God? I said to you that these were the words of my friend and mentor, Jack Williamson. And he's actually, I believe, preaching today on this very passage, Psalm 23, and the connection it has to the Lord's Prayer as well. And so if you would like to get a double dose and really hear it from him directly, he's preaching on their live stream. I believe it's uh, YouTube, and there'll be a link uh, in our YouTube show notes here for you. But I believe it's uh, Caneo Valley Church of Christ, and you can find their message on uh, YouTube. But Jack found this connection and shared it with me 
uh, at a youth pastor retreat a few years ago. Jack began by praying uh, Psalm 23 in the Lord's Prayer every morning, either that or, or uh, either Psalm 23 or the Lord's Prayer every morning and every night before he went to bed. And he learned that after taking a class at Fuller Seminary from a guy named Dallas Willard. And Willard is probably one of the most influential minds when it comes to spiritual formation of the last 50 years. And in this class, Willard was asked, what's the most beneficial spiritual practice of your life? And so he he answered, every morning and every night, I recite and meditate on the Lord's Prayer or Psalm 23. And that inspired Jack to do the same. I wonder what would it look like for you to commit these two passages together so that you might recite and meditate on Psalm 23 and the Lord's Prayer. That you might, as Jack described it to me, take a word or phrase from it and just process that and riff on it. That your prayers might be taught by Psalm 23 and the Lord's Prayer. You might learn new language by riffing on these so powerful and essential passages. For many, anxiety is as deadly as the evil spirits and severe as the evil spirits of the Bible. But I believe none of us can truly escape the evil spirit of our day right now during this global pandemic. Might the music of Psalm 23 calm our anxious souls. I know simply saying Psalm 23, even quoting it like I did at the beginning of our service today, is not going to flip a switch or be like rubbing a magic genie and getting a wish granted that you might just be calm. Maybe you you do some yoga and you say, man, I I feel a lot calmer when I do that yoga. And I, I hope that you have practices in your life that can just help you calm. And I know deep breathing has helped me. Just taking a breath, oxygenating my blood has helped. But it's not as simple as just flipping a switch. It's not just as simple as memorizing some words. It's not just as simple as playing some good music. We really need to allow God to be the shepherd of our hearts. And this needs to be done in relationship with others. This is why church matters. But simply watching a worship live stream, I'm really glad that you're here, and I'm glad that you've listened and stayed with me during this this message this morning, is not really church, though. We need to support each other, to hear each other's stories, to spur each other on towards love and good deeds, like the Hebrew writer says. So I invite you to join a mentor group to go a little bit deeper in your participation in our church, not just watch from afar, not just come on a Sunday when we hopefully will be back together in person, but that you might actually engage in relationship and community. As you um, you think about Psalm 23, it's not alone in its understanding of God as shepherd. The prophet Isaiah actually has some things to say about shepherding and the way that God shepherds us. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. 
I really believe that God is wanting to be your shepherd of your heart. So Psalm 23 comes to teach us that, to teach us to pray, allowing and trusting that God would be the one that leads us close to his heart, that we might be people like David who play the harp, who share, who pray, who calm others' anxious hearts like David played the harp and the lyre to calm the anxious heart of King Saul. That we might be people after God's own heart because we're trusting in the shepherd of our hearts. A gal named Leslie Weatherhead, as I was preparing this sermon, wrote this, Psalm 23 strikes a positive note. It's not beseeching God to be something or do something, it's stating positively that he does, that he is and does all that is required by man. The writer does not say, oh Lord, be my shepherd, make me lie down in green pastures, lead me beside quiet waters or still waters. No, instead he's asserting confidently that these very things are happening and glorying in them. And so likewise, Jesus confidently speaks of God as shepherd and God's shepherd heart seeking those that are lost. And we may feel lost, depressed, and anxious. We may feel distant from God, like as if we were part of the flock and we have now wandered away. And maybe it's not that God is distant, but that we are distant from God. And so Jesus in Luke 15 tells several parables about the heart of God pursuing those that are lost. And he speaks of a shepherd, and the implication by the author Luke is that God is this shepherd who has a hundred sheep and one is missing, and he counts up his sheep, and he leaves the 99 to pursue the one, and when he finds the one, it's a celebration. God, as a shepherd, wants to seek out you. And Jesus then speaks of himself as the good shepherd in John 10. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is what Jesus does. This is what David, the man after God's own heart, what the kings of Israel were pointing to, that ultimately there was going to be one anointed, the chosen one who was going to be the true good shepherd, who was going to lay down his life for sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me. And I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus knows you. Jesus knows your name. Jesus knows your anxiety. Jesus knows just like he knew the heart of Saul and the evil spirit that tormented him. He knows your heart and the music and the melody, the words that need to calm your heart. Jesus knows the green pastures and still waters that you need to be by. And Jesus prepares for you a banquet. And Jesus pursues you with love and goodness all the way, all the days of your life to the house of the Lord. Who have you made the good shepherd of your heart? The king of your heart.